Hey everybody, Brandon here. We got something a little bit different for you this week. Uh, rather than me and Josh just uh, batting back and forth on some topics, I ended up reaching out to a Brazilian tabletop role-playing game designer who I'd had some interactions with on Twitter. Uh, his name's Cesar Capacli, and he's designed a bunch of different things. Uh, he has a really unique take and philosophy on game design, and it has uh, resulted in him creating some interesting stuff, including a game that's designed to be played while you sleep. Uh, it, it's fascinating. But uh, he uh, was in the process of moving from Brazil to Portugal when we were uh, talking. So we talked maybe like a week before he was supposed to go overseas. Uh, so I'm very grateful that he took an hour out of his very busy schedule to sit down and talk to me just about games, his philosophy, his history, and everything like that. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy, uh, and be sure at the end to uh, check out the links to his stuff that I'm going to put in the show notes. He does most of his stuff on itch.io. Uh, he has a lot of stuff up there for sale, and he also has a print-on-demand store at lulu.com. But like I said, I'll put all the links to that in there. So I hope you guys enjoy this. We've got a few other sort of interview-style episodes that we're working on uh, just to try to do something a little bit different. So we hope you guys enjoy this. Let us know uh, if you want to see more stuff like this, because it's uh, it's super fun for me, given sort of my career history as a journalist, to dip my toes back into sitting down, talking to people, uh, hearing their stories and things. So uh, I'm going to turn this over to me from about two weeks ago now, and uh, I'll catch back up with you at the end. Bye-bye. I've got uh, Cesar Capacle with me, like I described, uh, and uh, I want to thank you, first of all, Cesar, for making some time to sit and talk with me tonight. I know you've got sort of a lot of stuff going on in your life that you've you know, told me about as we were trying to get this set up, but thank you so much for making some time for me. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's no problem. It's no problem. I, you know, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit, but... Um, you know, I, I sort of discovered you just because I pay attention to like the um, tabletop role playing game Twitter and stuff like that. And I saw some of the stuff that you had been producing and you were talking about it. I went and checked it out. It's really interesting. I'm really excited to talk to you about some of this stuff. Um, I, I'd love if I'd love it if you could just sort of start off uh, telling us all a little bit about yourself, how you got into game design, and then maybe we can veer into your game design philosophy a little bit. Of course. Yeah. So. Um... I think I started with game design about, I want to say six years ago, but more of like experimenting with hacks and everything. But this thing of uh, designing games was with me since I started playing. And that was probably uh, 25 years ago. I, I don't think I remember playing a game without tweaking rules or in the middle of the session, thinking to myself, what if we had this, but with something different? So uh, I always had this itch to produce, and uh, I got encouraged to do something uh, at around 2016 or so. So I released a, a few games in Portuguese, and uh, after I got some confidence on what I was doing, I decided to give it a go and publish uh, some games in, in English. For the last year, I quit my job and decided that I'll be a full-time game designer, which is I'm so scary. jealous. <laughs> I'm so like I'm so jealous. I work in mortgages now, so oh. I'm super I'm super jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had a, a government job. I was at the uh, environmental office. I was the advisor to the secretary of environment. So, uh, yeah, I was coordinator for a climate change action in my city, which is a 1.2 million city here in Brazil. And uh, I spent nine years there and uh, I decided it was enough for me. <laughs> I needed a change <laughs> of pace. And uh, I think, you know what? I don't want to get to the end of my life and think, 
what if I had tried to be a game designer full time? So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm giving it a shot and, uh, well, it's, it's going pretty good. I, I, I can't complain. It, it's, it's been a blast. <laughs> About how many products would you say you've released by now? And, you know, like you can count your hacks or, uh, anything like that, but like how much, how many like discrete different things do you think you've put out in the last few years? Ah, uh, more than 20. That's for sure. I, uh, the last year alone, I guess I produced 10 different games. Uh, when I started doing it full time, I first, uh, tried to do a buy me a coffee kind of thing mm -hmm. on which I promised to release a, a new game every other week, which was intense and very fun. <laughs> So uh, I, uh, I managed to do this for a while and I just decided to stop it, not because I was going to get uh, like burned out or anything. And just because I, uh, I wasn't getting a lot of return from the buy me a coffee thing, uh, as much as I was having sales from the individual games on H.io. So I said, well, you know what? I, can, I maybe can spend a little more time developing some of these games and uh, polishing them and uh, spending some time marketing them online. And uh, it's, for, so far, it's, it's getting a little better results than uh, just having a game released every, every other week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you actually have a really well-built-out itch.io store. Um, you know, I bought uh, a couple of your items, uh, and you know, we'll talk about them in a little bit, but I bought those off of your print-on-demand Lulu store. Because uh, right. it was linked, you linked from uh, a Twitter conversation, and I didn't realize until I went to your itch.io store like the other day, um, like just how much stuff you had on there. Uh, it's it's kind of a, kind of amazing. You have a ton of things here, and I don't know how like in depth a lot of them are because I'm really only familiar with maybe like three of them, honestly. Right, right. But uh, you've you've got you know quite a quite a library going on here. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Well, there are a lot of things that, from all kinds of sizes, really. And I have uh, like six-page games. I have a game on a mug, but I also have 80-plus-page games as well. So, yeah, it's kind of uh, diverse. Well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit just about your philosophy of game design. I've got a couple of observations and I'll, you know, maybe ping you on those as you're talking, but I want, I want to hear what you think are, if you had to make like a bulleted list of like the, the four or five things that always had to be in a game that you design, like the, in a way that you approach it philosophically, what, what would those things be? Interesting question. <laughs> well, uh, there is a part of it that is, I had to realize uh, and assume to myself that I am very much externally motivated. So mm -hmm. uh, instead of fighting against it, I leaned on it very much. So uh, a lot of my games uh, started with an external motivation, be it, I don't know, my nephews and nieces asking to play a game of some sort, and uh, instead of using one of the many games I wrote, I decided to write a new one just for that specific occasion. Mm -hmm. Or uh, surfing the itch.io game jams and finding different prompts for game design. This is where some of the ideas come from. But also what I have as, uh, as bullet points for my game, game design philosophy, as you said, is one, the backlog of what ifs that I have eternally in, in my head. What I mean by that is when I'm reading something, be it a game or, I don't know, a Twitter thread or a, an article or, I don't know, watching a TV show, there's, there are some sparks in my mind about what if we had a game that had this kind of aspect mixed with something else. So. I don't usually design games as soon as I have those what-if moments, but they sit in the back of my head for a while. And then when I find another what-if that's not 
necessarily related whatsoever to the previous one. They cross paths and that becomes a game. So uh, as an example, I think, Scraps. I had this idea after I've read Mouse Ritter that uses a kind of uh, inventory system that is physical when you have this, those little tiny square cards to place on your character sheet to demonstrate the slots that you have for inventory. And then I thought, what if we had some kind of a Tetris-like mechanic for managing inventory or managing anything, really? And then this sits in the back of my head. Uh, after a while, I stumbled upon a game that had a very strong crafting aspect. So it crossed paths with this other idea of uh, using Tetris. And I said, wow, we could have crafting game with Tetris-like mechanics. Mm -hmm. And then a month after that, I, uh, I, I was, I guess, reading Wonder Home or uh, listening to a, a gameplay of Wonder Home, really. And I was really in the moment of a non-violent uh, uh, fantasy, more pastoral fantasy. And when I stopped, none of these things were a game. And then when I stopped to create something, all these three what-ifs mixed together and uh, became uh, scraps. So this is something that I try to do in most of my games, cross these references that I get everywhere. And uh, another thing, you can interrupt me at any time, okay? Otherwise... No, I don't want to spoil <laughs> your flow, man. You're doing, you're doing great. All right. So another thing that uh, today is near and dear to my heart is exploring GMless gameplay. And uh, I, I feel very strong about that right now because after I read Iron Sworn, I don't know if you're familiar with this game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with it. I haven't played it, but I know what, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it changed my life, man. <laughs> because uh, it is designed to play either solo or cooperatively or guided, which is the traditional way. Mm -hmm. So... What that means is that the game design has to provide tools for it to be run without a human being uh, taking care of things that are not explicitly written in the game. And this approach to game design is something that I value very much because if you look, you can use a GM to fill gaps that you don't feel like covering on your game design. When you design a game that can be run without a game master, your mechanics have to support gameplay. And I think what you end up with is a game that uh, gives more to players and leaves less for people to bring to the table. So I think it's more friendly in a way mm -hmm. in which you, you have to support with mechanics, it, I don't mean that it has to be crunchy, but everything that is in the game serves a better experience of what you think your game should be about. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I, yeah, like I've I've read through scraps, and so I'm just gonna talk about that since I can sort of see the parallels of what you're talking about there. But um, you know, one of the things that struck me when I first read it was just very it, very much how it it could be focused on single player exploration and play and you know a lot of these single player games you find um there's maybe like a card mechanic or something like that where you pull a, a card out of a regular deck of playing cards that'll either have an item or you know motivate an event or something like that you made really good use of of tables in that you know like d6 tables um it almost had kind of a like a, a troika kind of feel i don't know if you've ever played troika no i've read it but never played yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it very much is a, a D6 game and uh, there are a bunch of uh, tables and stuff in it. It's kind of like a superficial comparison, but it's it's kind of what I thought. I thought about three things when I read this. I thought about Troika, I thought about Tetris, and I thought about Minecraft. Right, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, the thing that really did strike me about it when I first read this and then, you know, some of your other games too, is just the emphasis on like solo play essentially, because those are becoming, it seems to me, more and more popular in the last few years. I remember mm -hmm. maybe like 
gosh, probably 10 years ago or something like that. It was maybe right before fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons came out somewhere in the last like, you know, seven to 10 years, something like that. There were like jokes in the um, role playing game Reddit communities about the single player game options that were out there. People just like, well, isn't that just a book? You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. What attracts you about the the GM list gameplay? I know you were talking about it gives people less that they have to prepare if they're coming to it. Do you feel like it it's more player involvement, like it forces players to have more of a hand in creating the world they're playing? That's one thing for sure. But uh, I uh, after 25 years playing, I, uh, I think I'm on a point in my life. It, it might change in the future. I don't know. I'm not interested in this unbalance of uh, responsibility and authority in games. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean asymmetry. Asymmetry is super fun. Like uh, uh, Slayers is super fun. I don't know if you saw this one. Spencer Campbell released a game that uh, every single uh, character has different mechanics <laughs> for combat and everything. I mean, really different. Like different dice pools, different uh, fail and success uh, standards. I mean, I'm interested in asymmetry. What I'm, I don't like very much is the the burden that usually comes with being IGM and having mm -hmm. this division of responsibility and authority at the table. And also what brings to the conversation you see about games. I don't know if you have the same feeling as I do, but uh, we have a lot of uh, discourse and problems with uh, people discussing on Reddit and Twitter of problems they find on their tables that I that could be resolved if there was there weren't this division between a, a person that is responsible to bring the whole world and the others that just show up. Mm -hmm. When I uh, my experiences with GMless play, they're more like a GM full play. Really, everybody has a little part of uh, a responsibility, and uh, it's spontaneous and. Uh, leaves less room for this kind of uh, abuse in both sides. For one side, the GM can uh, abuse power or abuse uh, their, their interests in, in some kind of a plot. And for the other hand is players just, you know, I have no responsibility. I can just show up, do whatever, and screw all the NPCs and storylines just because. Mm -hmm. And when you have this uh, leveling, of responsibilities and authority, I feel that players are more invested in making that experience as good as possible for everyone. And, uh, you know, that fascinates me. I've been playing uh, traditional, kind of traditional RPGs, like, you know, dungeon crawling and stuff, mm -hmm. GMless as well, with uh, the help of oracles and tables and uh, sharing responsibility to create NPCs or obstacles or challenges. And man, I've never had more intense and fun experiences with this. Uh, as I, uh, it's been like 15 years that I didn't have uh, as much of a fun experience as I had with these examples that I gave you. So I'll, that's, uh, that's yeah, one I'll, thing that fascinates me. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll agree with you because I, uh, like pre-COVID, I would run a lot of public games in like breweries and other public spaces. So a lot of times I would be playing like essentially, you know, I was running pickup games for D&D &D as part of uh, the Goblins and Growlers business model that we had. So people would just show up. We would have some pre-gen characters for them and we would run through, uh, you know, sort of a homebrewed module that we'd written and we're running for a bunch of tables. And at a certain point, um, I started thinking about other ways that I could get people sort of just more involved to get more excitement at the table and things like that. And I had been dabbling in some other systems like, uh, you know, playing like uh, fate core where, you know, everybody has sort of a hand in the world building at the beginning of it. And I started including some of that in what I was doing at the table. Like, you know, I, I would sort of wash my hands of some of the prep work on some things not name towns, not talk about the things that were in towns, not necessarily name NPCs. And just when we get to one of those decision points, 
um, just go around the table, be like, well, what does everybody think this person should be named? What should their job be? What's their relationship to this situation? And it really does like bring all so much more player investment. Um, and it, it, and I'm including myself as a player in that too, even though I was, you know, the GM, but yeah, for it, sure. it, it makes me want to hear what they have to say rather than them, them just sitting there listening to me give a sermon essentially. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the first time I, I, uh, I stumbled upon that was with fate as well. Mm -hmm. And then later with uh, PBTA games, I think the first one that came to Brazil, the first one I had contact with was Dungeon World. And mm -hmm. uh, I've uh, seen some uh, gameplays of it. And the freedom of uh, a player asking the GM at the point and asking, do I know anyone in the city? And the GM replying, I don't know. Do you? And uh, giving this authority back to the, the players. And what do you know about the city? Or thief, what's the last thing you stole here? How did you get away? And uh, easy, step-by-step, uh, step, I uh, came to... to realize that the GM was not as much of a necessary uh, point on the game design for games like that to work. Of mm -hmm. course, if you have a, a huge lore or a world building, many plot points that you have to, before you start playing, it may be necessary to have one single person that uh, controls everything but i don't know man i don't think <laughs> it is honestly even with the uh, more traditional games i can see uh you changing your stance from uh, director to actor or from gm to player many times and uh deciding even uh, how badly you fail and uh surprisingly enough when from the get-go everyone is responsible for everything they don't get they don't go easy on themselves on, on something goes wrong they decide mm -hmm. you know you know what i think my character dies here i've seen this many times because <laughs> you know it serves the story so it's fascinating yeah it's it's almost it's like a successful democratization of the fun right exactly um, because you, you get somebody who's, and I, you know, I'm just as guilty of this as anybody in a GM's position, but you get somebody who's written this story and, oh my God, this story is the best story that's ever been written. I did such a great job. I cannot wait for my players to experience my story, which I, you know, I'll look myself in the mirror and say that is the wrong way to look <laughs> at it. Um, but, you know, we've all done that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, you walk into it if you if you're trying to do more of a, a, a democratic storytelling method, sometimes you walk into it and you feel less prepared than you probably should be for the quote unquote responsibility you're about to embark on. But right. you know, every, like everybody pitches in and supports and because so-and-so got their idea used and such and such got their idea used, everybody just has all that much more buy-in and you didn't have to do as much work uh, and everybody had a great time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I know it's not for everyone as no game is, uh, but for me, I had a hard time prep, prepping games because uh, I, I was anxious, I was nervous, I was over prepping. I, uh, I got the time, so like two days before the session, I said, you know what, guys, I, I'm not okay. Let's skip the session. And with this approach, it's just like showing up for a board game session. You know, mm -hmm. you don't need to have this pressure beforehand because you know everyone is there to share uh, this responsibility. But I know that for some players that can be terrifying. There, there are people that say, oh no, I just want to sit at the table and just feed me all the information and tell me when I have to roll the dice and I hit people and I uh, say my lines and that's all the experience I have. Okay, fair. That's okay. Yeah. But I'm not in that position anymore, you know? Yeah, it's, you know, you, you grow in and out of things. Um, right. And I'm, I'm not saying that kind of play is bad. I'm not saying it's more uh, inexperienced or anything like that. It's just, you know, depending on what's going on in your life, maybe that appeals to you a little bit, a little bit more, like surrendering the control so you can just sort of experience the story. 
rather yeah. than being a yeah. full player in it. Um, talking about uh, GMless games and things, one of my favorite ones, and this really this really opened my eyes to um, how much fun you can have in a game where there's nobody leading the action. And it, you know, you get to a certain point where you have to ask yourself, like, is this a role playing game or is are we treading the line into like a board game or something like that? Mm-hmm. But one of my favorites is The Quiet Year by Avery Alder. I don't know if oh, you've ever yes. played that before. That's a yeah. wonderful game. It um, is. You know, you can just sit there for four hours spinning some crazy story about like maybe some apocalyptic earth with your friends mm-hmm. uh, before the frost people come and kill you. It's just it's an amazing way to spend like a rainy afternoon uh, just where the game provides the structure for you all to tell a story. Uh, of course. Yeah. But, uh, the Quiet Tear is a masterpiece. Yeah, I, I, I love that game so much. Um, but um, talking about you know, we t- touched on scraps a little bit when we were talking about, you know, solo play and um, uh, the Tetris stuff and everything. But, you know, we can talk about GMless stuff and we can talk about solo play. Like, where do you see the distinction on that playing a soul? Like, what's the difference between a game with nobody running it versus a game where you're running it, but you're also playing it? Oh, it's very distinct. Uh, it- Although the mechanics don't need to be the experience it is. I mean, it can feel really, really weird playing a game by yourself for the first few times, especially because there is no feedback from anything, really. It's different from playing a video game alone because there's everything else that is programmed to respond to you. And when Mm -hmm. you're playing a role-playing game alone, it's hard to do it by yourself. And most of the times when you, when you start a, a, a solo game, it's easier to think on the journaling mode because it's a way for you to keep track of the story and feel that you're producing a story, really. But that's not the only way to play solo games. And Ironsorn taught me that too, because it's a, a low fantasy game, uh, PBTA-inspired. Uh, just just for folks who don't know, PBTA is powered by the apocalypse, which is a framework essentially for creating role playing games. Exactly, started with apocalypse word with the bakers, mm-hmm. and uh, so Ironsorn in it, you play a solo adventurer in a low fantasy uh, setting, and uh, you don't need to write a journal. You can role play out loud by yourself if you want to. You can uh, record. As a podcast, you can write bullet points just to keep track of uh, how your story is going. Or you can even just imagine in your head, like uh, daydreaming. So it can feel a little weird. And uh, I think the biggest difference is not having uh, inputs for anything that you do from another living being. Mm -hmm. When you're playing cooperatively or with a, a guide, you, ha- you can rely on people to feedback to you or suggest uh, or give you ideas or uh, fill in the gaps that you leave. When you're playing alone, uh, you have to rely on the oracles. The oracles, for those that don't, don't play solo games, are mechanics like random tables or yes or no questions that answer for you things that usually IGM would. So you walk into a city and you ask, uh, do I have a, a, a smith here? And you roll some dice, yes or no, they you answer. Or you can answer uh, complex questions as well, like what's the weather like? And you roll on a table and you get like strong and dark. So you interpret that by yourself and you fill in the gaps by yourself. But I think for me, it's a very rewarding experience. I came across solo games a few years ago. And uh, oddly enough, we have a very strong solo RPG community in Brazil. Uh, really? The, yeah. Uh, the solo RPG group in, on Facebook has over 3,500 people. And uh, I guess now near 1,000. Uh, PDFs, be it uh, little games or supplements or oracles or tables or gameplay reports. 
So it's a very strong community. And I got involved. It, it's weird to talk about a community of solo players, but uh, <laughs> a room full of a room full of only children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, we exchange gameplay reports, like people post on their blogs. We read, we comment, we exchange uh, oracle tables, hacks, suggestions of games, online tools, and everything. So it's a very vivid community. I love it very much. So if you haven't had the chance to experience a solo play, I strongly recommend you doing. If you feel awkward talking by yourself, which is fair, okay, it is. Uh, what I do when I do it, I record uh, voice messages as if I was recording a uh, podcast. So I have <laughs> a, a log of my session as in, in voice messages on a app like uh, Telegram or something like that that I can save to audio formats and I have a, a log, which is fun. Or you can write, or you can daydream. Go nuts. I like, I like the idea of doing your captain's log as you're playing the game so you can go back and listen to it later. I think yeah, that's, it's so fun. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's great. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I am an only child, so I had to make a lot of my own fun back in the day. So it's kind of, this is the kind of thing that I wish that I had back in the 80s. Uh, <laughs> right when I was looking for ways to entertain myself, but you know whether I'm talking to myself or talking to other people, I always feel awkward. So that's no different. So yeah. I should just be able to embrace that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, embrace the awkwardness. It, it will be fun. I, I mm -hmm. promise you. <laughs> so, talking about uh, you know awkward and weird things, I wanna I wanna make sure because we're at about a half hour now, so we've got some time left, and I don't want to forget about this. But I absolutely want to talk about a neuronaut. Um, because this is a game that you did. I bought it off your um, Lulu store. Uh, it's right. it's actually not that it's not that long at all. It's maybe like 20 pages, this little book. Yeah. But every like since I bought it and I read it in the morning before work uh, after it came and I was telling people about it for several days. And every time, like almost without fail, when I describe the game to somebody, they're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I would, I just want you to talk about it for a few minutes, talk about what it is, what you do and how you came up with it. It's just fascinating to me. Right. Yeah. That, that is exactly, that is weird to say the least. So yeah, uh, it started when, in this solo group on Facebook, I, I told you about, uh, some people were telling their, their strategies to playing solo games in any circumstance if you don't have dice or anything. So I heard a report of a guy that said that he played solo games in his head while he was biking to his work and using the license plates as randomizers to get results. <laughs> Pretty fun, right? So you have yeah. a D10 to run uh, when you spot a license plate. So he came up with a sort of a six or or more is a success. So he was imagining the scenes in his head when he had to roll for a test. He looked to a license plate and got the result while he was biking to work. <laughs> so I said, wow, this is fascinating, right? What yeah. are, uh, so this comes from another of those what ifs that I told you about. I think another touch point of my game design philosophy is trying to reach to the borders, to the edges of what is a game, what is not a game, what is an RPG, what is not an RPG. So I, I'm mm -hmm. always trying to question those limitations. So if I, I said, if this guy can play while cycling, what's the limit of uh, a situation that you can play a solo game, right? Can you play a game while you are at lunch? Can you play a game while you are, I don't know, at the dentist? And yes, some people said that they had a treatment on their tooth and they played a game while they were on the dentist's chair. So I said, <laughs> I said wow, what's the limitation? Can you play a game while you're asleep? <laughs> so, that, <laughs> so that was the starting point for Onironaut, which is a game that you pay, play while you're sleeping. And I imagine now everybody listening is like, now the what now? <laughs> so I would love for you to just sort of walk us through the steps of what a, what a game of a Neuronaut looks like. Right. So a Neuronaut is a game. Uh, I, if I had to summarize, what I did was I gamified 
lucid dreaming. The lucid dreaming is this uh, uh, practice that some people do that uh, you kind of uh, realize that you are dreaming, but you don't wake up. Then you have control over your dream. There's a very uh, vivid Reddit community about lucid, lucid dreaming. People exchanging their experiences, tips, kind of diets they need to get better results and everything. And people practice this. I had never practiced this before. But when I had the idea of uh, playing game while sleeping, uh, lucid dreaming came to my mind. So a game of uh, Oneironaut is pretty much you are a soldier of an, an entity that lives in the dreams. That is, uh, and you work for the soldier to try to claim ownership of the dreamland. I'm kind of paraphrasing myself here because mm -hmm. uh, uh, something like that. And uh, what you do is you uh, decide right before you go to sleep on a place you have to visit and an action you have to do while you are dreaming. And then you go to sleep, you put some meditation music on and you sleep and you dream and uh, you have to supposedly get control of your dreams and perform those activities in order to win a war against another uh, spiritual entity that is trying to claim the dreamlands for themselves. That's the gist of it. Mm -hmm. And there's like different domains. Um... Yeah. So I had to do a lot of research on uh, the most common dreams you have and the most common things you experience while having dreams. So uh, for people that never had the experience of lucid dreaming or, you know, never practiced that, they could enjoy the game without having to perform nothing too extravagant. So just dream that you're falling or dream that you're flying or dream that you're naked, that common dreams that people have. And uh, those become uh, the tasks that you have to perform while you're sleeping. Have you successfully played a game of Oneironaut? I have, yeah, a couple of times. I'm the worst lucid dreaming dreamer that I know, but uh, <laughs> uh, I had this experience, and, uh, but I didn't win the war. I kind of lost in the middle because, I don't know, I, as I told you, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> but I had reports. I don't know if you had the chance to read the comment section on the, the Oneironaut page on itch. No, and, no. Uh, I, just, I just read the actual physical book. Can I blow your mind? <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. A guy reported that his, he was playing with a friend. What? Yes. <laughs> they, they homebrewed a multiplayer rule. So... <laughs> If they manage to dream about the same domain or the same thing at the same night, they scored an extra point. That's amazing. It is. And they played for like nine to ten months and he reported back telling that they won the war after nine, ten months playing a cooperative game of <laughs> In Your Dreams. <laughs> a massive multiplayer dream. That's yeah. That's, that's fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. Oh my God. And, uh, uh, you know, I had this idea and uh, it was one of those things that you said, I have to write this down because I need this to exist. I don't know if uh, <laughs> anyone else will relate to this game or they will just laugh at me. But it was so weird, so strange that I thought to myself, this thing needs to exist in the world. And I have to tell you, this is my best seller game. Really? It is. I mean, it's just like, I, I, I said really like, I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I didn't mean it that way. It's just, um, that uh, it is surprising, just, isn't it? It, it is. Cause it's just like, you talk about niche games. Like yeah. this is like niche times a thousand. It's, it it's is. I mean, that's just, that's fascinating though. I mean, I encourage anybody listening to this. It is worth picking this up. Just just to read it and get the ideas from it. Like I, I, I plan to actually try this at some point. I've just had a lot of stuff going on like work wise that I haven't been able to focus on it up to now, but it's just such a cool idea. I can't wait to give it a try and see if I am as bad at lucid dreaming as you are, which I probably <laughs> am. I probably am. 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, there are some uh, scoring systems by the end of the book that uh, provide some extra points if you keep a healthy sleeping schedule and everything. So yeah. and, uh, it, it has been studied that uh, practicing lucid dreaming can actually improve the quality of your sleep. So if you don't win the war, uh, I, I think you can get some benefits. And uh, there are therapeutic uh, evidence that people that live with trauma or uh, unsolved problems in their daily lives actually get answers to those problems and those trauma while lucid dreaming because you are free of the uh, societal, uh, I don't know, chains, let's say. And mm -hmm. uh, when you're dreaming, you're free to explore facets of yourself that you wouldn't otherwise. So uh, it's, uh, it's a healthy experience. You're gamifying your own introspection. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much I am, yes. Would you, would you say that this one is the weirdest game that you've ever put out? I think so, yeah. yeah. Okay. What, what would be your close second on that? My close second probably is Short Rest, which is a game on a mug. <laughs> I, you know, I actually saw that when I was looking at your itch store and I did not have a chance to really like explore it and see what it was before we were talking. Please right. educate me on Short Rest, the game that is literally on a coffee mug. It is it, literally. So uh, Short Rest was a game I created because I felt, well, it, it can be played as a standalone game, like you uh, stop for a coffee, or you can use it as plug and play to your either your solo or group campaigns, really. So when your character stops for a rest by the fire and uh, stops to reflect about the experience they had, you can grab a cup of coffee, in this case, this actual cup of coffee, and there are a series of prompts they use the uh, same mechanic that Oniranot uses to randomize a number, which is to look at the two digits of uh, a watch and add them together to get a number from 0 to 14. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a prompt to talk about uh, experiences that you had as your character. Past experience, your best memories, like a fight you had, or your wishes, your motivations, things that you want to accomplish as, uh, as your character. And there is, on the back of the mug, there's, there's a series of random words that you can place your finger without looking to get a random prompt and uh, add it to your narration of the story. Oh, so, I'm looking at a picture of the mug now. It's like, it's like yeah. almost like a hex map and you've got words in different hexes and stuff. Exactly. I see what you're saying. When you're gripping the cup, your finger is going to land on or close to one of those. Exactly. So uh, you randomize a prompt for, for example, for something that you're going to tell uh, on this uh, short rest that you're taking, like things like a bittersweet victory, uh, a scar you wear with pride, a secret you need to uncover, a fond memory of your childhood, and you share this experience with your group or alone if you're playing solo games, uh, using or not one of the words that you can randomize placing your finger on top of one of those hexes. And the scoring system for this game is based on how much time you spend doing so. So this is actually, short rest is either, a, a, it's a mention to the mechanic of a short rest, but it's also an incentive for you to slow down and appreciate some moment of reflection. And uh, so it's a, an invitation for you, even if you're playing it not as a plug and play in your campaign, you're playing by yourself to just, you know, just don't swallow your coffee and go do the next thing you have to do. Stop there, enjoy this moment, daydream a little, and then you go. So it's an invitation to slow down. Really. So not only is it like a mini game for your own, for your character's development, it's also sort of like a meta mini game for your life to just sort of slow down for a few exactly. minutes. Exactly. That's that's great. Going that's back to great. the uh, <laughs> going back to the game design philosophy points that you mentioned in the, in the beginning. Another strong one is I try to hide deep things under cute little looking games. Uh -huh. <laughs> like my cutest looking game, The Land Beyond 
which you play as a raccoon in a balloon exploring uh, a land, is actually a game about letting go, about burden, about guilt. And uh, the far you can travel with your balloon is based on how much you can let go of your past mistakes, your guilt, and everything. So it's all cute, and but when you play it, you might cry. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, short rests. You can play it uh, innocently as a, just an add-on to your campaign. And I had, an, oh my God, the best report from uh, someone that bought the game. He was running a 13-age uh, campaign and uh, brought the, the mug to the gameplay and invited their, their, the players to share this experience. They were in the middle of a, I don't know, level 10 campaign. It, things were very intense. And uh, he typed out everything that they experienced during this short rest. And man, it was so deep, so rich in backstory. And I thought, wow, it worked. <laughs> the thing <laughs> I wanted this game to do, it did. So it was very satisfying. Oh, that's awesome. Can you actually like buy it on a mug? On the it is short? available as a physical mug. Oh, that's fantastic. I. I, I used to work in newspapers and I was always trying f to find ways to like push the format a little bit, try to find other ways to get like readers to interact with it, like force them to like turn the page or fold it or do something with it. So I always appreciate a really solid like like swing, like a hard swing for a, an interesting use of format and putting it putting a tabletop role playing game on a coffee mug is probably the new example <laughs> I will give to someone for the best way to do something like that. Oh man, it was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, that one was, uh, it, I had a very good reception. The people incentivized me to do the weirdest thing, man. Uh, I mean, I, I create a game that I, I think nobody will play because it's just so strange and weird. And the reception, the weirder it gets, the better the reception I, I have. So I will keep pushing. <laughs> Uh, so I want to talk about your most recent game uh, that you were itch funding not too long ago. Uh, and I actually got the, you know, the PDF copy that you managed to like get done. I think just a few days ago, actually, mm -hmm. is that right? Um, it is. Starlight Riders. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Right. Starlight Riders was very much externally motivated. It's part of the Space Western Summer Jam. So I was looking for the next game to make. And uh, I stumbled upon this Space Western jam. And I didn't know a lot of about Space Western, just by the name of it, I guessed what it was. So I tried to investigate a little bit. I actually asked for recommendations of media on Twitter, got a few, I dived a little bit on it, and I thought, wow, that can be a fun little thing to explore. And then, uh, as it usually does, it crosses my mind with some of the what-ifs that I had in my head for a long time, uh, such as using a strong card-driven gameplay with custom cards mm -hmm. and also sharing characters in a cooperative game, which was another exploration that I tried to do. So Starlight Riders is a space western game about heists across the galaxy. You play as those outlaws. Uh, there is a, uh, I, I don't know, two pages of lore. Of uh, It's just a, a backdrop for the heists, really. Yeah, uh, I mean, ba basically, if I remember correctly, uh, the wealthy people all left Earth because Earth was you know, polluted and going to hell, and they left all the rest of us here. Exactly. But in, instead of just withering and dying, we were like, ah, oh, screw those guys. So we took decades and we built our own spaceships and we followed them out where they were. And then we were determined to just sort of Robin Hood them for the rest, yeah. of, for the yeah. rest of their lives. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the point. So yeah, I love heists. That's another what if that was in my mind. What if I took uh, a heist game and put it in this head and I, I don't know, shared the, the, the characters and everything. And uh, this backdrop is, on the surface, just a, a caper rationalization. It's, I guess it's a, on TV trope, you can find it. How do yeah. you make people sympathize with people stealing? So yeah, you're stealing from very bad people. But it is also a sort of, uh, 
critique on cap late stage capitalism and uh so you're playing to show that we won't stand for you know billionaires just doing what they want to do and uh you play i uh actually got inspired by the space western uh, tropes and went ahead and tried to find art for it so uh i don't i can't draw to save my life so everything that i <laughs> i I design, I have to rely either on public domain stuff or things that I find on Canva because I can't afford to pay yet. I can't afford yet to right. pay an artist, artist to do stuff for me. So I stumbled upon a, a, a website that scans public domain comic books from the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. And that's where I got all those designs. So uh, more than once, the setting itself was inspired by in, in all the games i do inspired by the art that i have available to do the games and uh, there was no exception in starlight risers i think you know you may have lucked into it but i think what you ended up having to do for the illustrations in it was just perfect like it it using the the 50s and 60s comic books uh was just it suited it so well as I was reading through it. I was like, I, I 100% know what this is about, like reading through this and seeing those images. I just, I thought it worked great. Oh, thank you so much. It was, oh man, you can't imagine the tens of thousands of pages of comic books I, I had oh to God. scan through to get those and then uh, uh, just cut them out and uh, treat them a little bit on the Photopia, which is the, uh, poor man's version of Photoshop, which is free online. Right. And uh, but I mean, it turned out with uh, an aesthetic that I think it's kind of cohesive overall. Yeah. yeah I and, mean, it, uh, it gave me it gave me a very strong like cowboy bebop feel mixed up with like Galaxy Rangers. Like, oh, so yeah. So oh, I that was exactly what I was aiming for. So <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I thought was interesting when I was and we'll talk about the mechanics in a minute before we wrap up. But one thing I thought was interesting when I was reading through it is you ended up having to put a disclaimer in it about the art. It was like, hey, I know this art isn't really representative uh, in terms of like uh, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, uh, but it's kind of what we had. So yeah. <laughs> I did the best I could because there's kind of a lot of white men in this. Oh my God, you wouldn't believe it. And uh, when we had some kind of representation of, a, of different ethnics, you, you can, uh, it was disgusting the way they portrayed, uh, I don't know, Asian or African descendants. So I had to repurpose the, those uh, uh, images I found because if I took them in the context they were written or drawn, Man, it was just not, it's not very good at all. Yeah. So uh, I have to rely a little bit on the uh, understanding of the people reading it. I tried mm -hmm. my best. I, I found some, uh, at least some uh, women, uh, one or other um, Native American people that was not portrayed in a very problematic, stereotypical way, <laughs> like mm -hmm. two or three, the most and uh some african descendant too but uh it's very very hard to find from that era something that is dignifying of uh diversity yeah you know i, I encourage everybody first of all i encourage everybody to go to cesar's itch itch.io store and i'll put a link to that in the show notes but definitely check out starlight riders if for nothing else for to see the art that we're talking about because you really don't have like i think everybody sort of understands when we're talking about like comics from the 50s and 60s like the kind of representation we're getting there it doesn't take too much for your imagination to get to probably exactly the right place that we're talking about in terms yeah. of the kind of stuff cesar was finding <laughs> but um i want you to talk a little bit about the character sharing mechanics in this because i thought that was i thought that was really cool yeah so i i had this idea in the back of my head for a while and uh what I tried to find here it was, since it's a GM-less game, and I intended it to be a very pick-up-and-play experience, you can play one shot, but if you were going for a campaign mode, you don't even have to have all the same players on every session since the characters are shared. Because if you switch players, 
there is no missing uh, another character. But that was not the first motivation that I had. It was just a sort of sub-product that I, I'm very happy that it, it is there. But my first uh, idea was that we could very easily having a game in which everyone is responsible for everything to choose uh, a, a character to activate on every round that you play. And uh, my first motivation was when I am reading through a, a, a book, a, an RPG book that has either classes or playbooks that I'm, I feel very excited to play them. And that, you know the feeling you read, oh, I want to play all of them. Yeah. And, I, and then you commit to a campaign with one and you can't help but think, what, what if I had chosen a different one? Or you, you see another player playing with you with all those cool abilities that you wish you could try or those scenes that this kind of character is under the spotlight. And I think I thought to myself, well, you know what? I think I can fix that. <laughs> I think I can allow players to experience, to jump from character to character during gameplay and experience the facets they are most interested or invested in from different playbooks or archetypes in a role-playing game. Because when I was promoting Starlight Riders, I usually had the character cards showing people and, uh, oh, I love them all. I, I really like the face, but I want to play a gun gunslinger. Oh, I couldn't decide. So I, th I thought, yep, I have the solution for you. Don't worry, when you get the game, you don't have to decide. <laughs> you can play them all. So that was my first motivation, really. And uh, although there is a limitation in the game that you, when you go to a heist, you can't take all of them uh, because it makes the tactical choices, strategical choices you make a little more high stakes. Mm -hmm. But even then, you as a group can decide, oh, we're excited to have scenes with these five characters and we'll jump back and forth between them. There's nothing stopping you to do so. So you share character voices, and every time someone activates uh, the same character, they get to add a little quirk or a trait or a description of uh, their look. So it's, uh, it's not world building that's shared, but character building is also shared during gameplay. Yeah, it's kind of like a culmination of everything we started talking about at the beginning. Like you've... you've taken a whole bunch of different things from your sort of philosophy playbook and combine them into Starlight Riders. It feels like to me, at least, based on what we've talked about. Yeah, definitely. For sure. It's a combination of lots of things I've been working on. Because the, the way the game works, just my like quick understanding of the mechanics from reading through it, is at the beginning of your adventure, you pick like almost like the classic sort of Ocean's Eleven kind of scene of like, all right, we need this person for this, and this person's specialty is this, and this person does this. And you assemble your team, uh, the number of which depends on how many people, how many like humans that you have playing. Um, and then as you like move your way through and take your turns, you can say, oh, I want the gunslinger to go do this. And then you can come back on your next turn and say, well, as a consequence of all the stuff that's happened here, now I want the face to go do this. Exactly. That's exactly the gist of it. So yeah, uh, you create the job for us, really, which is a place, a location, and a thing that you have to get. Classic heist. And then you together create the steps you have to get to this thing. But it's not more like a, necessarily a list of obstacles you have to overcome and more a list of moments that I call. That's another thing that is part of my game design philosophy. It's designing games around moments. And uh, what I mean by that is when you think of uh, creating a game or even planning a session or even joining a game as a player, in your head, you are thinking about those moments you want to experience at the table. Oh, I want to activate the certain ability because I want to feel the feeling of this happening in the story. Or I want to uh, my players to come across this huge bridge over a canyon because I want to, them to experience being there. So those are moments, really. They're not rules. They're not obstacles. They're not encounters. Uh, so I try to focus my game on moments. It's almost like you're writing a script 
Exactly. And it's like your climactic moments or your wide panning shots and stuff. Is exactly. So when you create those moments on Starlight Riders, then when you're assembling the team, which is exactly the Ocean's Eleven scene you said, you can look at those moments and uh, discuss with your group or if you're playing alone by yourself, which characters I want to see on these moments performing their stunts. And then you assemble your team based on that. And I guess there would be nothing stopping somebody from essentially doing their own hacker add-on to this game to strip it of sort of the space Western aspect and turn it into just a straight up ocean style heist game. Oh, for sure. Uh, easily. I actually recommend and give some tips at the last chapter of the book on how you should do that. And I encourage you to do so. Uh, if you reflavor, uh, I, I mean, I don't think you need even to reflavor the character archetypes, the roles that I put there. Maybe mm -hmm. the guns linger to something similar to that, the pilots to the driver, but it's a, it can be a modern Ocean's Eleven game for sure. How long did it take you to put this together? Well, it took a little longer than I expected because I'm moving overseas. So that was uh, a mistake, a planning <laughs> mistake on my part. Mm -hmm. uh, but it took a month. This is longer mm -hmm. than my average gaming design uh, schedule. For, uh, for reference, scraps that you, that you want on, it was written, laid out, illustrated, everything in six days. I'm, let me stop you for a second and just tell you how jealous I am <laughs> because I have so many ideas kicking around my notebook right now. And this thing that's stopping me is time, like having time to be able to do that kind of stuff and like devote the sort of discrete chunks that I need to be able to put a product. Out. Right. Yeah. I completely understand. Yeah. I mean, before I had the decision to, to quit my job and do it, I uh, had lots of game ideas for years, but the thing is, even if you have some hours, you don't have your best self on those hours. You're usually stressed out or tired. Yep. And uh, when I had like my best hours, my, my most productive hours devoted to game design, I could pull out, pull off something like that. Like scraps was six days and it's a 70 ish page book. Lizurgia, I, I wrote designed everything laid out and uh, came up with the idea and everything and published in seven days and uh, it's an 83 page book so your, your uh, productivity is biblical almost <laughs> literally <laughs> <laughs> that's why i uh, i had this idea in my mind that i could do starlight writers in 15 days but doing that while moving to a, a different country it was yeah. a, a small mistake. So I have the PDF out and I'm uh, still working while I tear apart my apartment on uh, creating the print-on-demand version to give it to backers, give the coupon to backers. Yeah. And, you know, by the time this comes out, you will be on the other side of the ocean. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> I know that that has to be that has to be stressful. It's like a problem for me to move across town. Uh, yeah. let alone across the ocean you wouldn't believe and i'm thanking my wife and my dog <laughs> if you plan to take a dog overseas you need four months of preparation <laughs> are you looking forward to it oh yeah sure i'm very excited i mean i'm at a point that uh i'm so busy that i can't get stressed about it anymore but uh, i'm really looking forward to to settle in my new place all right. Well, maybe after you get settled over there, we can have another conversation. I feel like there's at least two or three more hours worth of game design chat that we can have. But yeah, it, it's you're about two hours ahead of me, so it's later for you than it is for me. And I, I know your sleep's probably pretty precious right now, so I'm going to let you go. But if you would just let everybody know where the where the best places to find you or you know message you or anything like that are. Sure, of course. Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at uh, Kapakli. I know it's my last name. It's kind of hard to to memorize i realized that i used my name as my branding and then i i said uh oh nobody will never know how to spell it but uh think of it as capable but with a c instead of a b so it's c-a-p-a-c-l-e <laughs> that's my last name so at kapakli and all my links are at kapakli.bio.link my games are uh, kapakli.h.io and you can find everything on kapakli.bio.link 
and I'll be putting all of that in the show notes for, for this. But uh, Cesar, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening in the middle of this complete upheaval in your life. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, but thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Brandon. Thanks for having me. All right. Hey, everyone. Future Brandon here. I uh, just wanted to circle back around and thank Cesar again for taking time out of this inordinately busy period of his life to spend an hour talking to me about stuff. Just want to ask everybody at least take a look at Cesar's itch store. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes here, uh, along with just his sort of general Linktree-esque link aggregator. So you can check out all the stuff he's working on. But uh, give him a follow on Twitter. Take a look at the stuff that he's developing. Uh, check out his Lulu store. He's a really awesome guy. I'm glad uh, I had the time to talk to him and he's putting out some really great stuff. So we'll see y'all later. Thanks.